podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. This is our Lazio review episode, and I am joined by a guest to help me out with that. He is just fresh off his return from his trip to Napoli. Vincenzo Bertillo, welcome back. Thanks, Joe. It's always good to have a, a friend to talk to about Napoli. And, you know, after being there, I'm already a little, you know, quote unquote homesick. So this is just bringing me back already. Yeah, well, I think we're we're probably going to maybe we'll try to talk about the Sassuolo match a little bit as we go through the the Lazio match cuz you were at that one. Unfortunately, I may be bringing you back to some some things you probably don't want to remember too much because we are going to focus on this Lazio match primarily. We even waited an extra day. We kind of let it air out for for a day or two because as is often the case when Napoli lose a match Everybody loses their minds, and I suppose it's just sort of human nature. We're emotional beings, but sometimes our emotions take over and logic just goes right out the window. Right out the window, Joe. I think it's you know also human nature to try to find sort of simple explanations for things that are just inherently more complex. And when we apply that to football, we tend to become very reductionist. We tend to look for a scapegoat. That'll be a bit of an overarching theme for this episode. You know, three or four seasons ago, the scapegoat was Mario Rui. A few seasons ago, the scapegoat was Stanislav Lobotka. They both seem to be doing quite well now. After this match, the new scapegoat was Juan Jesus. So that's where I want to start. Then a lot of people were saying after this match that we simply cannot have him as a starting central defender. What's he doing? All these things. How did the club not sign someone better? We should have spent an extra $10 million and gone for... Danzo or whoever else, is it fair to put so much of the blame just on Juan Jesus? I don't think it's fair at all to put almost any of the blame on Juan Jesus. I mean, I don't think he was any worse than most of the performers in that game. I think a lot of the team had a, had a bad game and maybe he didn't have his best, but I don't think he was largely to blame for either of the goals, which I'm sure you'll, you'll get into. On top of that, you know, just to touch on the fact that I was there at the Sassuolo game and one of the most impressive performers for me that game at least was Juan Jesus. I mean, his passing out from the back was significantly better than Rachmani's, who's obviously a, a great player and a player I like, but his passing out the back is great and his reading of the game is pretty good. Obviously, if you're leaving just him and Rachmani back and the entire team is going to be attacking... And then you have, you know, four runners against just Juan Jesus and Rachmani, then they can seem like they're exposed and he may, in comparison to someone like Kim, not be as fast. But he's also not like a slow center back either. You know what I mean? And I just think he's an easy scapegoat. I think he was more than adequate enough when he filled in for Rachmani last year for Koulibaly the year before. We never really dropped any more significant points than we normally do. And I don't think he's the long-term answer. I don't really 
want him or expect him to be the starter for the entire season. But while Natan gets used to his surroundings, to have Juan Jesus there, I don't think is a major problem like everyone's making it out to be. It's always funny because nobody ever seems to recognize the good plays he makes. So it's just the occasional error that really sticks in people's minds. Like he made a great block in the first half. I, I can't remember if it was Oliveira that got beat. Oliveira was pretty bad. And nobody said anything about that block. But as soon as we concede a goal, he's the first guy that everyone jumps on. So I have a few thoughts on this. First of all, I think we need to point out that what we're really talking about is the second half. Because in the first half, aside from the goal that we conceded, which I'm going to get to in a second, we were actually very good defensively. Both center backs were very good. I mean, Rachmani had a fantastic first half. He was intercepting passes he was making important tackles he made that sombrero <laughs> i mean he did a lot really well and then it all kind of broke down in the second half that first half we were dominating up until the goal we were dominating i still felt like we had control of the match even after the goal we equalized right after the goal lazio scored on their only shot attempt not even their only shot on target their only shot attempt in the first half the second half like i said is where we fell apart but again, I, I think it's way too reductionist to just put it all on Juan Jesus. And frankly, I think it's lazy analysis. You know, I saw people posting screenshots and highlighting Juan Jesus's position on both of the goals, which I think is a little bit ridiculous because screenshots never give you the full picture of what's going on, right? I mean, for anyone who's listened to the show for a really long time, I used to break down the goals. And so I went back and I did this for these two goals just because... I know that if you rewind 30 seconds before a goal is conceded, you're going to find a few other people that are probably uh, should share in the blame, let's say. Because I'm not letting Jesus off the hook either. I think he had his part to play in both of the goals. But to say that it was entirely on him, I don't think is fair. So let me give you my breakdown of the two goals. On the first, there were a few key moments, I would say, in the development of this goal. First of all, it started with a Lazio free kick. And nobody's talking about this either. But I, maybe we're just taking it for granted that you know the officials know what they're doing but it started with a Lazio free kick because Victor Osiman was called offside and I'm not even entirely sure that he was actually offside at least on the replay it looked to me you know from the camera angle that we have which is not the offside angle like perfectly aligned with the players but it looked like Adam Marusic actually kept Osiman offside and if that's true then Napoli should have had a corner kick because that was a play where we went you know Osiman lets the ball bounce, Lazio clears, Zelinski controls it on his chest and sort of lays it up to Osimhen. He shoots to the first post and Provedel stops it. Now, in fairness to the officials, they waited a while before that offside flag went up. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and just assume that he was offside. But it's not like we had the semi-automated offside technology camera to actually validate, you know, because it looked pretty inch close. But that aside... Lazio take the free kick. They make a few plat passes to work the ball to the right side of the field. Then there was an exchange of passes between Kamada, Cataldi, and Felipe Anderson. And Oliveira and Lobotka didn't seem to be on the same page to me. It looked like what happened was Oliveira was very aggressive with his press. If this was hockey, we'd say he pinched, right? Like he got very tight on Kamada. And I think he only would have done that with the expectation that Lobotka would have followed the run of Felipe Anderson down the right wing, because otherwise he left the entire right wing, Lazio's right wing, wide open for Felipe Anderson to make that run. 
Cataldi plays the ball over the top and Laboca doesn't follow. And that's how Felipe Anderson gets wide open on that right wing. That's also the reason why Juan Jesus ended up being out of position because he saw Oliveira got caught pinching. So he shifted over to help support on that side. Now, Oliveira did recover. Actually, he blocked the first attempt at the cross. So you could say that at that point, Jesus should have retreated back to his position. But even if you look at where Luis Alberto made the run from, it's not like he was the guy that Jesus was marking the whole time. He made the run from, let's say, the penalty spot or further out from the top of the the edge of the area. And so when Jesus is where he is at that point because he went to support his left back, his teammates need to either tell him there's a man behind you so he can then readjust his position or those teammates need to follow that run, right? And as far as I can tell, they did neither of those. And it's funny because where Jesus set himself up was basically that, okay, Oliveira is going to block the passing lane towards that first post. Obviously, nobody's expecting his teammate to get nutmegged. I mean, what can you do? So he was blocking sort of the next passing lane. And if you go back and look at it closely, even Jesus actually points to that first post as if to tell his teammates, someone watch that run. And when you look at that freeze frame with Alberto in front of the goal, he's surrounded by Napoli players. Now, Rachmani was probably marking Chiro Immobile, so I'm sort of willing to let him off the hook. And Gisa was really marking no one. And I think he got caught ball watching a little bit because you see he's looking at Felipe Anderson on the ball. He's not following or paying attention to Luis Alberto in front of the goal. And maybe it was a little bit of kind of like everyone thought somebody else was going to pick up the run and in the end, no one did. So that alone tells you that you can probably point the finger at, you know, the blame at three or four players, Oliveira for a couple different things, maybe even Laboca a little bit and Gisa and Juan Jesus. So that's my assessment of the first goal. The second goal, I think, is a little bit simpler to break down. You know, obviously it starts with Zielinski giving the ball away to Felipe Anderson and he gets outmuscled off of the ball. So right there, you know, as good as Zielinski was in this match, he's probably been our best player over the course of the first three matches. So, I, you know, he had three shots on target out of Napoli's four. He scored the goal. He nearly scored in the second half. So I don't want to sound like I'm crapping on Zielinski, but on this specific play, he did give the ball away. So he has to take a portion of the blame. And then you had Di Lorenzo falling for the dummy that Luis Alberto did, which hats off to Luis Alberto. He had a very good game. And then Rachmani, who was unable to block the shot. Now, again, I'm not going to let Jesus off the hook because he was kind of defending no one, standing in a little bit of no man's land. If anything, he should have shifted over to Mark Chiro Immobile because if Kamada didn't shoot, he could have just teed the ball up for Immobile, who would have had an open shot to kind of curl it towards that you know, the Tira Giro towards the second post. So Jesus should have shifted over and maybe he might have screened Alex Meret a little bit by not doing that. But again, you know, you have Zielinski, Di Lorenzo, Rachmani, and Jesus all kind of, in my opinion, equally to blame on that second goal. So again, all of that is just to say, you know, to point all of the blame on, on just one player, I don't think is very fair. Now, I think part of the reason that people sort of immediately jumped on Juan Jesus is because he's currently playing in the position that was vacated by Kim Min-jae. And when we think back to last season, 
and all the great plays that Kim made, we can't help but think that if Kim was playing, he might have single-handedly prevented both of those goals with just some sort of ridiculous play or ridiculous read or crazy speed to catch Kamada or whatever. But Jesus is just not that guy. It's not his fault either, right? Kim is a totally different player. I don't think it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not fair to Jesus to say that it's your fault because you're not Kim. Yeah, I fully agree. I just think that everyone's judging him harshly because of the comparison, as you say, to Kim. But almost every defender in the world is going to pale in comparison to the performances Kim gave last season. On the other hand, you know, we lost at home to Lazio last year. So even Kim didn't make us perfect. And we were still capable of losing. We lost 4 nothing to Milan as well. I mean, if the whole team has a bad game, then it, it doesn't really matter who you have back there. But would Kim make a difference? Of course. He was the best defender in the world last year. And, you know, right now Juan Jesus is starting because we're kind of in a transitional period. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about Nathan and, and so on in some of these decisions going forward. But I just think that you're absolutely right. And frankly, I thought if we're going to rank worst performances in that game, although I don't like to point to single players, I thought Anguissa and Oliveira were worse overall than Jesus, personally. That's my feeling. Actually, I wanted to talk about Nathan next because I think another reason why people are kind of freaking out a little bit is because they're looking at this and they're looking at the fact that Nathan hasn't played a single minute yet and they're starting to worry that maybe Jesus is actually supposed to be our starter for the season and that would be concerning. But, you know, at the very least, let's wait until, I don't know, what I've kind of said... If we don't see Nathan play by, say, the end of September, then I'll be very concerned that, wait a minute, maybe we just brought this guy in to be you know, the fourth center back, which means we've massively downgraded at that position. But until then, I think we have to go on the assumption that Nathan is still the replacement for Kim. He just needs time to get up to speed. I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, Garcia... He's experienced enough to know that, okay, this guy is coming from Brazil. He's got natural talent, but he cannot speak Italian. He cannot speak English. Okay, there are some Portuguese players on the team, but one he would have to be replacing in Jesus, so he wouldn't be on the field with him. And the only other one is Rui, which might come in handy, the fact that he may play next to him. But the fact of the matter is you need to get used to your surroundings. And he came late in the market. Now, I know people will say, well, look, he started Cayuse, he put through Lindstrom on. Okay, but if you've played the game, you know that center back is a particular position. First of all, if you make a mistake as a center back, 90% of the time that could lead to a goal because you're the last defense before the goalie. You know, if you make a mistake as a winger, you can get away with it. You know, maybe you make five mistakes, but one good play, you score and you've had a great game. You know what I mean? So it's a little bit different and it's, of course, no matter where you are on the field, you have to be used to and, and have a synchronicity with your partners, but none more so than a center back with his center back partner and with the keeper behind them. I just think that it's smart to allow Natan to get used to his surroundings. He's moved from another country. He's a young man. And there's no problem, in my opinion, having Jesus start these first few games and then bringing in Natan, you know, perhaps as soon as the next game versus Genoa, and not just because of the result versus Lazio, but just in general, I think that may have been the plan. And I have a great trust in our scouts. I've watched as much Natan as I could since he's signed, and I have a great faith that this guy will turn out to be a great player, 
maybe he won't be the level of Kim, but I think he can be a lot closer than someone like Jesus. Well, you can even make the argument that even Cayusta and Lindstrom were played too soon, right? Like you look at Cayusta had a pretty difficult match, I would say. His first match concedes the penalty. I think he showed some good signs, but you can argue that it was too soon to put him in. Lindstrom was okay, I suppose. I mean, he had some chances. He was a little bit, his touch seemed to be a little bit off. Maybe he was a little bit nervous. So neither of them shone on their on their debuts, and maybe they needed to, they shouldn't have been thrown in there so soon. The other thing is Lindstrom played in the Bundesliga. You know, he played in the Europa League. He played in the Champions League. That experience automatically makes him way more prepared to feature than Nathan, who's only played in the Brazilian League. So he's a raw talent, but he needs a lot more refinement. And Cayusta has given a couple of interviews to Swedish media during this international break. And he was asked by a media outlet called Expressen about his first impressions of his new team. And what his response was, was that, he said he was impressed by the quality of the players and how quick they are tactically and technically. And he said the biggest difference for him, I imagine between playing at Mithyland and, and Napoli, is the pace of the game, which is faster than he's used to. So that's evidence right there that maybe the club is actually doing the right thing because what you don't want to do is throw this guy in there. And as you said, as a defender, mistakes can be way more costly and just crush his confidence. And then you've got a much bigger problem on your hands. As you said, as far as I can tell, Natan only speaks Portuguese, and that's something that Garcia has commented on as well, that he needs to speak the language first so that he can be properly coached. I, I think a lot of people just think of like the in-game situation. That's one aspect, being able to communicate with your teammates on the field, but it's also being able to understand the coach's instructions in training, right? If you, if you don't speak the same language, I mean, you're not going to have Juan Jesus or Mario Rui standing next to you all the time to translate everything. So that's also going to make it take more time. That said, I do think we are going to see Natan very soon. Like you mentioned the Genoa match. The reason I said end of September is because if you look at our schedule, first of all, it's jam-packed. The second half of September, we play seven matches in 23 days, I think it is, because we have Genoa when we get back. Then we have Braga in our first match in the group stage of the Champions League. I don't think that's the game to put him in. Then we have Bologna after that three days later. Then we have a midweek fixture. Um, I think it's Udinese midweek. Then we play against Lecce the following round, so another three, four days. Then we have Real Madrid in the Champions League. And then Fiorentina before the next international break. So there's a lot of games there, so we need to rotate. Now, maybe that's when Ostegard finally gets his opportunity. I don't know. Or maybe that's when we finally start using Natan because... Games like Genoa, Udinese, Bologna, Lecce, these are teams that are perfect to introduce him against where he's probably not going to have that much work to do. You know, you would expect that we would control those matches. So, you know, I'm not stressing about the center back position just yet. As I said earlier, if we don't see him play in any of those matches, then I'll start to be concerned that, okay, we actually brought this guy in to be the fourth center back. So that leads me to the last thing I want to touch on in part one, which is, Another thing I saw a lot of Napoli fans either saying directly or alluding to, and that's this suggestion that we should have signed a better center back. Then these comments drive me nuts for two reasons. First of all, as I already said, we don't even know yet what we have with Natan because we haven't seen him play. And second, 
I just don't think that any of the many, many names we were linked to in the summer were anywhere near the quality of Kim. Like I, I get a strong, I'm sure there are some people who watch lots of football from lots of different leagues and know these things better than I do, but I get a strong sense that there's a lot of people saying, ah, we should have just signed Danzo and they've never actually seen him play before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I thought we were going to sign Danzo at one point as well, but not because I'd seen a great deal of the guy, but just because it seemed like a heavy rumor and I looked into him and he looked talented. At the same time, 40 million for a center back who is still going to be a downgrade on Kim by a significant margin, I believe. And also someone who's, you know, fairly close to his prime age already. I think you weigh that versus maybe looking at someone like Nathan, who maybe needs a little bit more time before he really gets started for us, but has probably a higher ceiling and has a lot of the raw characteristics that someone like Kim has in terms of speed. He has a great left foot strong and perhaps in a shorter period of time he could reach a level that surpasses Danso for a quarter of the cost so I trust Napoli's team you know behind the scenes to weigh these options I mean look we spend 30 on Lindstrom so it's not as if we're beyond spending 30 or 40 million on a player it's just they were probably weighing is it what's better 40 million for Danso who's 26 and maybe still not great or 10 million for a guy like Natan, who we believe within a few months could already maybe reach the level of Danso and maybe in a couple of years reach the level of Kim. You know, I don't think there was a, a perfect guy where you grab him and he's you bring him in and he's on the level of Kim, even if you want to shop at Man City or Real Madrid, which would maybe be the only teams where you have someone who's even close to the level of Kim as a guarantee. So unfortunately, almost anyone will be an immediate downgrade, but I think Natan and I, I have the faith and belief in our team that Nathan will be someone who can get close to those levels. And we've traditionally had better luck with signing players for 10 million, like Di Lorenzo or, you know, Koulibaly or these type of players, rather than players that we've signed for 40 million or 30 million, like Manolas and, and so on. So I just think that we, we need to wait, see Nathan play and have faith in our scouts because nine times out of 10, they get it right. A lot of the names we were linked to, I was never truly convinced they were guys we were going after just based on the price tags that were being reported. Like Danzo, Kilman, Per Shores, Roger Ibanez, even Scalvini, all of these guys, their clubs were asking for 40, 50, 60 million euros. That's just not how we operate as a club, right? And I get it. You know, there were, if you're to believe the reports in the first place, there were reports, oh, you know, we were offering 30 or 35 and we were so close. We should have just paid the extra, you know, five, 10 million, whatever it was. But it's a lot easier for us to say that as fans, when we're spending someone else's money, right. And people start doing very basic math on, you know, how much we sold Kim for. And then, you know, they ignore a whole bunch of other things. And I just wanted to touch on that because what you see often is, well, we sold Kim for 50. We, that means we had 50 million to spend on somebody else. And it doesn't exactly work that way, right? Like, if you actually look at how much we spent in this transfer window, when you factor in that we redeemed Simeone, we redeemed Raspadori, we bought a couple of guys from Bari who we loaned out, which were kind of like future investment, future proofing, whatever, maybe just business decisions. I mean, buying from ourselves. <laughs> we actually spent 104 million euros this transfer window. It doesn't feel like it because a couple of those guys are not in the squad. And our transfer income was only 77 and a half. So our net spend was actually... 20 you know 27 million euros whatever the number is 
you know, and then people say, yeah, but we won the league and we made all that money in the Champions League. Well, we made 25 million euros from winning the league because that's all you get from winning the Scudetto. So let's say that makes you break even on your transfer spend. And then let's say we have 75 million euros from the Champions League. But people have to remember that there are other costs associated with running a club, right? It's not just this, have this money, it's all profit. Like the simple to pay the players. Well, yeah, the that's thing. the biggest cost, right? And and fine, the club has been reducing salaries as well. But at the same time, we're talking about giving Osimhen a club record salary, maybe even a Serie A record salary. So they're thinking about that. You know, we'll talk about the Cavada situation later, but he's probably going to get an increase at some point. And for me, the simplest way to think of how much it costs to run a club is in years, you know, the odd year where we haven't made the Champions League, like 2019-20, the mutiny season, we lost money. If you don't make the Champions League, you finish with a negative profit that year. So that just goes to show you that already some portion of the proceeds of qualifying for the Champions League or playing in the Champions League are going towards covering the cost of operating the club, whether it's the training facilities, the staff, the, the obviously the player salaries is the biggest one. And then also the club keeps a sort of a reserve, well, maybe not other clubs, but I know Napoli has a reserve fund, sort of like a rainy day fund for when things go bad. When you do have one of those off seasons, we have this money that we can use to ensure we, we come back up into the top four and don't end up just dwelling outside of the top four for an extended period of time, like a Roma, for example. And then it's really, really difficult because you look at them this year, like they've had actually a very good transfer window because they were able to get guys on free transfers and loans, mind you, lots of injury-prone players, and that's catching up to them. But that's the situation they're in, and that's the situation we would be in if we consistently missed the top four. So back to my original point, it's far more complicated than we as fans sort of make it out to be. So then you look at, okay, you move past those guys that were in the 40 to 50 million euro range. Then you're going down to a tier of guys that I always thought were the more likely replacements like Koei Takura and Armel Belakotchap and Danilo Doeki. And maybe some of those guys would have been better targets sort of in the short term in the sense that, you know, they could have probably just been thrown into the starting lineup because of the leagues they play in. But to your point, Nathan is also an investment for the future, maybe talent-wise. And I also trust our scouts. He's probably at the same level of those guys. We just have to be patient and, and let this guy be integrated into the squad. 100%. And I will say this. I agree with everything you said, but I truly believe this, that if ADL and the team felt there was a defender out there that we could have gotten for the 30 to 40 million range who would come in and be as good as Kim and guarantee us that level, right? We would have gone for him because then we maybe just spent 10 on a winger. You know, I'm not saying we would have paid 40 for a defender and then still 30 for Lindstrom. But if we would have paid maybe 30 or 40 for a center back that we really thought was a good investment for now and for the future, that was worth it, right? And then maybe we would have saved money uh, on other signings and signed a 10 million euro winger instead. But I really believe we would have done that. But I think they ended up weighing the cost versus the quality and then looked at someone a little bit more raw, like Natan for 10 and ended up feeling like, you know what? For the betterment of the club, it's worth it to spend 10 on him and then put 30 elsewhere rather than someone like, you know, Danso for 40 or beyond. You know, I really think that that's ultimately how they made that choice. Oh, for sure. Like, if there was someone they believed was genuinely the next Kim, and what I mean by that is buy him for 30 now and he's going to be worth 50 or 60 a year from now, 
I have no doubt in my mind they would have pulled the trigger on on a move like that. I just don't think that player exists right now. I don't think there is another Kim like there was last season. A hundred percent. And the other thing is we were talking a little bit offline about earlier about, you know, I've even been bringing it up in, in one of our chats. Who's the best center back in Serie A right now with Kim gone? Like right now, it's actually, a, there's a dearth of world-class center backs in world football period. And I mean, most people I ask, and I, you can even give your answer if you want. Most people say like Bastoni. Some people will put Rachmani in their top three. A couple of people mentioned Bremer, but even he's kind of gone downhill since the Juve move. So there's no like real standout. And even guys like Bastoni and Rachmani cost their clubs less than 10 million. Even if you look at the, the players who are considered to be the best center backs in Serie A, they're not players who were bought for 40, 50, 60 million anyway. So, I mean, we also have to keep this in mind and look at the context of the league and, and who the best center backs are. Absolutely. Yeah, you, did, you did pose that question. It was, it was interesting to watch the responses because they were all over the map. And I think that the key takeaway for most people to that question or in response to that question was that there are a lot of really good center backs in the league. There are probably no world-class center backs in the league. Kim was sort of the only one, and and he's now gone. Now, in his post-match press conference, Garcia was asked about this center back situation. And to paraphrase his response, he said, it's not only the center backs. We have to defend as a team from the front line to the midfield to the defense. And I actually agree with Garcia on this point. I think the entire team was poor defensively in the second half. However, I also think that's actually a poor reflection on Garcia himself and his sort of in-game management. We're going to talk about Garcia and his decisions and his tactics in part two. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Forza Napoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortsanapolipress.com. And thank you so much to all of our patrons who continue to support the show. Okay, so let's talk about Garcia, who's the other person that was scapegoated, let's say, or certainly got a lot of the blame for this defeat. And I think it was a lot more warranted than putting all the blame on Juan Jesus. Now, before we get into it, let me just reiterate that this was only our third match of the season under a brand new coach. So, Obviously, it's going to take a little bit more time for the players to adapt to a new system, which might be similar to Spalletti's in terms of the shape on paper. You know, it's a 4-3-3, but it's totally different in terms of the approach. And I think anyone who is already calling for Garcia's head is definitely reacting a little too quickly and a little too harshly. We need to give him more time as well. That said, I think there were a few things to be concerned with from this performance and how Garcia managed this match. Let's start with his first team selection, and we've kind of already touched on this in part one. I think most of it was pretty much set in stone. We talked enough about Juan Jesus, you know, in part one. You can argue maybe Ostegaard should have played there instead. Fine. The other position that I think is still sort of up for debate is left back. Matthias Oliveira started his third consecutive match, and I think we can all agree that he was not very good in this match. It's easy for us to play Monday morning quarterback, but Vin... Would we have been better off starting Mario Rui in this one? Oh, you know, you can ask me that in any situation (laughs) versus any player, and I'm going to say we'd be better off. I mean, I really am of the belief that Rui is overall better right now than Oliveira in pretty much every aspect of the game. 
you could argue maybe just, I mean, simply by his size, he's not as good at maybe defending, you know, high headers and, and, and you know, he's not maybe as strong as Oliveira, although he, he plays pretty tough. I think though that when you have a defense that plays the first two games and they play relatively well, you're reluctant to change up the starting defense as long as you know you're not playing every three four days so i just think he went with Oliveira because he played the first two games Rui's just coming back to full fitness and you know we can use Rui as a sub if need be and then maybe by the game after Rui will start and i think that was probably going to happen anyway like i think even if we won versus lazio against genoa i wouldn't have been surprised if Rui and natan both started for example you know so that's what i thought but after the first half i wasn't surprised that Garcia was, you know, smart enough to sub in Rui for Oliveira at a certain point. Yeah, I think it was around the 66th minute, something like that. I have two issues with Oliveira. One is that he gets forward quite a bit, which that I don't have a problem with. My problem is that he's not actually very good in the area. So, you know, he gets up and down the field like Di Lorenzo does, like, say, a Teo Hernandez, but those guys know how to put the ball in the back of the net. So he's almost just wasting energy with these runs back and forth. And the other concern I have is that he almost plays too similarly to Di Lorenzo, or or maybe because he's still relatively new. Obviously, he was, I would say Mario Rui was still their preferred starter last season. So maybe he's not quite on the same page with Di Lorenzo as Mario Rui is, because typically what you want is it's okay for the fullbacks to get forward, but you don't want them both doing it at the same time, right? And they need to be sort of in communication, keeping an eye on each other, where when one gets forward, who really should be Di Lorenzo, given his finishing, the other kind of hangs back a little bit. Because that way, if the opponent counterattacks, you still have three guys back. What you don't want is both guys attack, then you get caught. And as you said in part one, now you're stuck with just your center backs against three or four you know, attacking players who are obviously going to be much quicker than center backs. So that concerns me. And the other thing is when when the fullbacks get forward, then you need your midfielders to help defend. And they can only do that if they're not tired. And if you look at that Zakani goal that was disallowed, our midfielders just didn't have the legs to chase that ball down. Now, on that occasion, Mario Rui was actually back, but Rachmani and Di Lorenzo were both pressing very aggressively, going back to Garcia's comments about how we didn't need to be so aggressive in the press at that point in the match. They both got caught, and then fortunately, Zakani was just a fraction offside. We talked about the defending at the end of part one, but one of the big criticisms of Garcia's in-game management was that he left his midfielders out there just way too long. Zielinski didn't come off until the 84th minute. Lobotka and Angisa played the full 90 minutes. Then surely he should have changed his midfielders sooner than that, or, or in Angisa and Lobotka's case, he should have changed them at some point. Definitely, that was what I was screaming out for. I mean, watching the game, I felt, you know, I had just been at the Sassuolo game where Zambo came on and literally ate the field. Like every single loose ball, every single time the opposition had the ball, he was there. And who we saw versus Lazio, regardless that it's versus a better team, was a shell of that player. I mean, it was an unbelievably bad drop-off from the energy and ball-recovering ability he had in, in Sassuolo versus the Lazio game. Lobotka also wasn't, you know, at his scintillating best. Zielinski, I thought, was amazing up until maybe the hour mark, and then he started to tire. I'm wondering if perhaps maybe we're training really hard physically still at the beginning of the season, um, you know, behind the scenes to prepare for later. And 
because it's almost unbelievable how tired our midfield looked at a certain point. I do agree that for me, Cayuste and Elmas could have both come in at the hour mark at the latest for any of the three, but particularly Zambo needed to come off in my opinion. And Cayuste could have done the job or Elmas with his energy could have done not what exactly what Zambo does, but frankly, even if he's not as defensively, uh, he doesn't have the ball recovering characteristics of Zambo, I would rather Elmas at 80% energy than Zambo at 30%. You know what I mean? And so I was surprised Garcia didn't sub him, but at the same time, you know, Spalletti also was quite reluctant to sub Zambo, even when he was having lackluster games last season. So let's just keep that in mind and give Garcia the benefit of the doubt. I think even if you're a great driver and, and you buy a great new car, Sometimes it takes a little bit getting used to the intricacies of how to get the best out of that car. And he is a new coach and maybe he, you know, is just finding his feet for, you know, at a certain point, sometimes you need to trust players to stay out, but then maybe sometimes you need to sub and just using all of his tools. And, you know, I just think we need to give him the benefit of the doubt, but yes, I would have made some changes. Then again, I believe Garcia probably knows more about soccer than I do. I'm sure he'll learn from his mistakes because everyone makes them. Spalletti made them and, and every coach makes mistakes. Hopefully he's able to build and learn from this uh, game. I think part of the reason why the midfielders look so tired is because with this direct approach and, and this long ball that we're playing, you're stretching yourself. We're not playing as compact as we did under Spalletti. And, and I don't want to compare to Spalletti. A lot of people are doing this and, and a lot of people are saying we're not using Lobotka, for example, to his strengths. We're not using Angisa to his strengths. I mean, you can't expect a new coach to come in and play somebody else's system. Even if the pieces seem to make the most sense to play the way Spalletti played, Garcia is his own coach. He has his own philosophy. And this is how he wants to play. But I do think that might be contributing to, to why the midfield looks so tired. And to touch on that point as well, you know, a lot of people have been talking about Lobotka and how he looks like he's off. You know, there was this discussion about how he's he's touched fewer balls. And Garcia was asked about this as well. I believe it was in the pre-match press conference for the Lazio game. And his response was that, you know, if you're too dependent on one player, whether it's your playmaker or your goal scorer, then that makes you very easy to defend against because the opponent just has to shut down that key player and your whole thing falls apart, which I tend to agree with. But I think for anyone who's expecting Lobotka this season to be the same Lobotka as last season, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I just think under this system, he's just not going to shine as brightly as he did in last season or the season before. And that's not to say he's not going to be an important player. It just means he's going to play a bit of a different role. Like we see him dropping between the center backs to get the ball. He's still sort of making moves in the middle of the park and contributing to patterns of play, but he's he's not a pivot anymore, really, if you think about it, right? He's, he's more of a holding midfielder. He's not doing as much distribution of the ball, but that's okay. I also wanted to get your thoughts on some of the other substitutions because the Simeone replacement for Zielinski, 84th minute, I mean, you know, we can talk about that, I suppose, with the 4-4-2, but that was pretty late in the match. It's There's going to be limited impact of that change. But the other two changes he made I thought were really interesting, and I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with them. At the same time that he replaced Oliveira with Mario Rui, which was in the 66th minute, he replaced Cavada with Raspadori, 
And then in the 75th minute, he replaced Politano with Lindstrom. What did you make of those changes? Well, the Kvara and Raspadori change, I think it simply was Kvara played 15 minutes the game before. Now he played about an over an hour. I think he was always going to sub off Kvara. You know, I was watching it with a group of our buddies at Napoli Club Toronto and everyone's like, why would you take Kvara out? Well, the guy just came back from injury. You don't want to burn him out either. And Raspadori seems to be the second best left winger on our team. I mean, that's where he's mostly been playing. That's where he's mostly been scoring from. So to me, that made sense. He's, he's a quick attacking player. He can cut inside. He can work off the striker. I mean, I don't think there's a necessarily a better option on the left wing. The only other option might have been Elmas on the left. But I don't think that Garcia maybe sees Elmas as a left winger too much. So I think that was a fine choice. Obviously, in an ideal world, Kvara was at 100%. And maybe we leave him on later and maybe put Raspa on the right. But since we used Raspa there, then if you wanted to sub Politano at a certain point, your only real options were probably Elmas and Lindstrom at that point to play on the right wing because Chucky is gone. And I think that, you know, he made the judgment call that maybe he, he felt Lindstrom, even though he's new to the club, maybe has a better chance of bagging a goal than Elmas at that point. And, you know, listen, uh, he had the chance to score. He was in the position to score. If, if Lindstrom bags that goal when he's right in front of the net, Garcia comes off as a genius for trusting him, you know? So I don't think either of those subs was the worst for me. It was more, why isn't Elmas or Cayuse coming on for Angisa? That was more the one I was like, what the hell is going on here? To be honest, the other two, I didn't really have as much of an issue with. And just to touch on quickly in terms of what you were saying with Loborca, I mean, I still think he will be a key player for us this season. Maybe it'll be slightly different. Perhaps, and this is what we may be getting used to, you made a good point that if usually if one fullback goes forward, the other one tucks in and they kind of become a three-man back line. Maybe what Garcia wants to do is have both fullbacks' ability to go forward, but then maybe wants Lobotka to come back and form kind of a, what's the position that uh, Beckenbauer used to play? Libero, almost a libero type of player where he can block shots and join the defense, but also come out. And I think Derossi did that a little bit for Garcia under, uh, you know, in his Roma team. I remember he kind of played a little bit like that sometimes. So I think he could still be a key player. Maybe he's tucking in a little bit more and playing a little bit further back, but I still think he'll be key. And another thing to bring up is just that Napoli is the team who are having the least shots conceded and have created the most chances. So I still think that, you know, those underlying stats are similar to what we did under Spalletti. I mean, that's why we were the best team. We conceded the least goals and we pretty much scored the most goals as well. So I still think we're on track to be similar. Even the game versus Sassuolo, we were controlling them, having possession. We were in their half. I think that just things went a little bit haywire about halfway through this Lazio game and hopefully we'll grow from it. But I do still think that we will be largely possession-based, even if our attack is slightly different. If the stats regress to the mean, we'll be in a good place. Because if you recall last season, we sort of grossly outperformed our XG from an attacking standpoint. And defensively, we always had one of the lowest XGs. And, and I think we still had a pretty low XG. It's just the chances we are conceding, they keep ending up in the back of the net. I'm not going to bring up Alex Medet because that'll be a separate podcast. With the, <laughs> I know you have some opinions there, although you've actually changed a little bit on Medet. On Lobotka, I think that's a great point that you made because there were points in the match where he looked like he was playing at left back a little bit. So 
almost like he was playing as a the left sided center back in a back three because he was covering for Oliveta. So that could be one of these tweaks that again, new coach, new system. It's going to take a little bit of time for the players to get accustomed to. One thing that was great, I don't know if anybody saw, I shared it with a bunch of uh, Napoli fans, was Lobotka's interview with Forbes that he did. I I think it was done in June, uh, but they just published it recently. And it was very refreshing, I guess you can say, to hear, you know, a player talk. Like they asked him, how much do you think you're worth? And he said, well, I think I'm worth probably about 5 million euros, but you know, the president thinks I'm worth a lot more than that. So, and, and, you know, talking about how much he loves the city, he wants to be there for a long time. So, you know, if you get a chance check out that or, or reach out to me, I'll send you a link to that, that interview. So yeah, I think Lobotka will still be an important player. And I agree on the Cavada situation. I think Garcia basically confirmed that he didn't have 90 minutes in his leg. So that was going to happen regardless. I know some people were kind of saying, well, maybe you should let the player make that call. I don't agree with that at all because a player that's competitive like that is always going to say he wants to stay in. Next thing you know, he has a more serious injury and now a short-term decision lets a really long-term pain. So I'm fine with that. I am starting to question. I like I appreciate that Garcia wants to get Raspadori minutes some way, somehow. He's too good to not play. But I am starting to question whether the left wing is the ideal position for him. The other thing that made me scratch my head a little bit was the fact that you know we talked about this 4-4-2 and Garcia's done it a couple times now where he puts Simeone in next to Osimhen and what he said is that sometimes you just need a little bit more height in the area the problem is when you do that combined with bringing in Raspadori and Lindstrom who both played very centrally you're not putting in guys that are crossing the ball into the area now fine you have Mario Rui to cross the ball and he's going to do that but Lindstrom didn't play a single cross into the area. Raspadori played two, only one was accurate. So that felt a little like it didn't make a ton of sense to me. I mean, obviously Garcia is a lot more qualified at these things than I am. The other thing is, you know, if he's willing to switch to a 4-4-2, then maybe we should look at rather than a 4-4-2 is a 4-2-3-1, not as our, our only formation, but as if you want to make a tactical shift. And then you play Raspadori as a number 10. Because I think, to me at least, I think that's his best position or his false nine, some sort of nine. Somewhere in the middle of the field, though. You know, Spalletti even said at Coverciano that he views Raspadori as a nine. So that's something I'd sort of like to see. But, you know, I think we got to put our trust in Garcia for now and, and see what he comes up with. And then on Elmas, I mean, I'm starting to get a little bit worried. Even with Ostergaard. I mean, if I'm Elmas and I'm watching this from the bench and I'm seeing you know a guy that's been with the club for four days get thrown on before me a guy in the midfield is completely exhausted and he's being left on and I'm still on the bench I'm starting to think about maybe I need to go somewhere else and same thing with Ostergaard if if I'm watching this and I'm seeing with all due respect to Juan Jesus I think we defended him quite a bit but if I'm seeing you know a senior player like that getting a lot more minutes than I am I only seem to be used as a sort of backup to Lobotka when we have a lead and we want a bit more size to protect the lead. Then for both of these guys who are both very young and they both already have a Scudetto now, I think, you know, they might start thinking about maybe they need to go play somewhere else. Well, I think they're both very different cases, to be honest, because Elmas has played a lot more over the last couple of years than Ostegard has, obviously. I think Elmas... 
I believe that Garcia views Elmas right now mainly as the backup to Zielinski. And I think that for the most part, he will come on for Zielinski or be rotated with Zielinski in this 4-3-3 system. But he didn't last game because he was chasing a goal. So I think, what did he put on Simeone for Zielinski? I don't think that'll be the regular Zielinski sub. <laughs> I think we can agree. I think overall, he views Elmas as the backup to Zielinski and Cayus as the backup to Angisa. And because we don't really have a, a great Lobo backup, I do think that if Lobotka is out, I do think he will switch to a 4-2-3-1. We've talked about this before with maybe like Cayus and Angisa in the hole, and then you can use either Zielinski at 10 or Raspa at 10 or Lindstrom at 10. Any of those three would be fine as a number 10 in a 4-2-3-1. So, and that is a, a system that Garcia has traditionally played quite a bit. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see us use that later on. Am I worried about Elmas? I think it's the same worry we have every year. Last year, I was worried, even though he was getting a lot of minutes, that he didn't have a defined position, right? And so anytime you don't have a defined position, it's, it's hard to feel super secure because you're like, I'm using as a left winger, right winger, striker, you know, midfielder. At least he was getting used a lot. But we have to see when we have these seven games in 20 days if he's getting rotated like he was last year. If it's about, you know, trying to win a starting spot in our midfield or attack, it's tough for any player. It's tough to be better than Zelensky at what he does or better than Zambo at what he does, Loborka likewise. As for Ostegard, I believe he is the backup to Rachmani. I think he has more similarities to Rachmani. And I think that the left-sided center back will always be someone who we look at to be more of a ball-playing center back. You know, because one thing that Jesus does share with Kim is good ability on the ball. Okay. He's much better at passing than Rachmani and I just don't think that Garcia wants two players who are not the best passers at center back I think we'll always have one who's a little bit more physical and he's there for his body and his aggression and the other one who is more uh, starting plays from the back which I think Nathan will hopefully eventually fill that void and so I just think it's more difficult for Ostegar to play when Rachmani is always playing I, I hope that with the succession of games we have he rotates Ostegard with Rachmani and you know then the other side is rotated between Jesus and Nathan. I think Ostegard has more chance of playing more this season because last season whenever Rachmani was out Kim shifted to the right but I don't think Jesus or Nathan are great from what I understand at playing on the right side of center back so in the event that Rachmani is out or rested I think Ostegard will get those minutes and if you want to be in a top team it's hard it's very very difficult it's going to be up to him to decide if he wants to be a sub on a team like Napoli or go to a team like Genoa where he can start I think that makes perfect sense it's also important to remember that we now have two left-footed center backs so you want to keep those guys on the left and the right-footed center backs on the right just because that's their natural position. Last thing before we wrap it up, I'm going to put aside the comments Garcia made about not losing. But um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this tweet that the club made, uh, which I think it was on Wednesday. For those who didn't see it, it read, some media continue to tell having only the footballers' agents as their only source of alleged negotiations in progress for the renewal of Karaskelia. It's all bullshit. <laughs> no one from Napoli has ever talked about the renewal of the player whose contract expires in four years. Neither Mauro Meluso, nor Maurizio Micheli, nor Aurelio De Laurentiis, nor Andrea Cavelli did it. 
what do you make of this post on X? Oh, I kind of find it funny, to be honest. Like I do a lot of this stuff. I think people take it way too seriously and overreact to these things. It's not my way of communicating. If I was in charge, I probably wouldn't put tweets out like this. But on the other hand, I kind of respect them calling out, you know, the BS in the media. And sometimes agents can do a lot of bad things. And if they're coming down hard on far as agent, I don't think that's going to really affect the player so much. I mean, I've even I've even heard some bad things about that agent looking at some Georgian Twitter sources or X sources, you can say. And, you know, I think because of the loss to Lazio and then everyone is worried about Jesus and Garcia. Now this is another thing that just adds fuel to the fire. It's just because of the timing of it, people are overreacting. If we had beat Lazio 5-1 with two Kvara goals, I don't think anyone would care. It's not great, but at the same time, I don't think it's that big of a deal either, personally. It was definitely targeted towards the agent and a little bit towards the media. And I think we all know who's really the person behind that. So I don't think any, I think there's only one person at the club that's authorized to post. It's all bullshit. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, the timing wasn't great. Obviously, you know, one thing we've talked about for a long time is that we need some better PR people. I joked that one of ADL's grandchildren needs to do a, a communications degree because then they'll get hired because he hires his family members. But, you know, the timing wasn't great because just this week, one of the Italian papers, I want to say Corriere dello Sport, published the team's salaries and Cavada's third lowest on the team. I think only Golini and maybe Dasiak make less than him. He's at a million euros net a season. Granted, as we said, that's because we signed them from the Georgian League, right? Like that was before he had this amazing season last season. And, you know, I talked about contracts with the whole Spalletti situation. What's the point of signing contracts if they're not going to be respected? And then on, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. So today we got the nominees for the Ballon d'Or. And of course, Cavada <laughs> is one of the three Napoli players that made it in the sort of final 30, along with Osiman and Kim and Jay, who obviously is no longer a Napoli player, but he was in 2023. So I think the timing kind of made this all a bit messy. But at the end of the day, I don't see this happening. You know, some people were saying, you know, is this going to start to affect his mentality as a player and and all of these contract situations because the Zelinski renewal is not done yet, the Osimen extension is not done yet, the Cavada extension is not done yet or, or increase, or maybe it's not happening at all based on this tweet. But at the end of the day, it's still in Cavada's best interest if he really does want to play for his dream club, Real Madrid, or in the EPL or whatever. It's still in his best interest to play as well as he can on the pitch. And so I don't think a post on X is going to change that a whole lot. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Joe. You know, I, I still think, you know, not to be the eternal optimist, but I still think we have a lot of reasons to be optimistic about this season. It's just starting. Let's just take it easy with hitting the panic button. I'm not saying people don't have good points. I'm not saying Garcia is going to be the second coming of Spalletti. We don't know yet. But I think we have to support our coach and support our club until they give us repeated reasons not to, not just one bad half out of the beginning of the season. Let's not forget that last season, which was maybe the best Napoli season in history, if you look in terms of how soon we, we won the league, at the end of the day, we, we dropped points two out of the first four games. And we also lost at home to Lazio. So 
I think everyone just needs to calm down a little bit, trust the club. They earned a great deal of trust last season. And I don't think that Garcia is some hack or is the second coming of Ancelotti, who's letting you know his son uh, coach instead of him and while he's eating pizza or something. So I do think that no matter what, Spalletti and what we did last season was going to be a tough act to follow. But it also takes someone brave to come in and say, I am willing to try and follow that act and I am going to keep a lot of what was good about that team, but I'm also not going to completely ignore my own way of playing. And, you know, there's always going to be growing pains. Maybe this really bad second half we had will be a blessing in disguise and force us to make some tough choices and, and learn from it. And going forward, I'm really still excited to see what this season has in store for us. I couldn't agree more. Actually, I think that's the perfect way to end the pod with that statement. Everyone take a deep breath, chill out, try to get through this excruciating international break that we all hate. <laughs> and uh, Napoli will be back soon enough. Vin, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Anytime, Joe. It's always great to talk to a friend. All right. So you can find Vincenzo on X. I'm doing my best to call it X, which is very <laughs> weird. But, you know, it is what it's called now. So you can find Vincenzo on X at VinBNapoli. You can find me on X at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on all the usual social media channels at Parts of Napoli Pod. I'm going to take a couple of days off, but keep an eye out on the website. As usual, we'll keep you up to date on all the latest news in English, including how our players are doing during this international break. Our next pod will probably be a preview of our first match after the international break, which is against Genoa. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network.